welcome to Confessions of a Free Bird podcast. I'm your host, Lori James, a mother, divorcee, recovering caregiver, the author of Sandwiched, a memoir of holding on and letting go, a therapy junkie, relationship coach, somatic healer, and now podcaster. I'm a free spirit and here to lift you up. On this podcast, I'll share soulful confessions and empowering conversations with influential experts so you can learn to spread your wings and make the most of your second half. So pop in those earbuds, turn up the volume, and let's get inspired because my mission is to help you create your most joyful, purpose-driven life, one confession at a time. Welcome, Freebirds. I am so excited to have this conversation with my guest today. Today, you are going to hear from Leslie Rasmussen, who is a California native and wrote for TV comedies for Gerald McRaney, Burt Reynolds, Roseanne Barr, Norm MacDonald, and Drew Carey, as well as The Wild Thornberries and Sweet Valley High. She has written over 20 essays for Huffington Post and has spoken on several panels discussing women's empowerment in midlife, one including me. Leslie is a member of the Writers Guild of America, Women in Film, and the Women's Fiction Writers Association. After her first book, Happily Ever After, won over 15 awards and an honorable mention in the prestigious Eric Hoffer Awards, she published her second novel, The Stories We Cannot Tell, And that was published on July 11th of this year by Touchpoint Press and can be ordered anywhere books are sold. So welcome, Leslie. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lori. I'm so happy to be here. So am I. Leslie also lives in Southern California, not very far from me. And when she isn't writing or promoting her books, she can be found spending time with her husband and two very handsome sons. So before I get started, I have a confession to make. When I read your first book that you published around the same time I published my book, I was in admiration of how you took a difficult subject matter and brought humor into it. And at the time I was reading your book, I wished I was able to do more of that in my own book. So I commend you on your ability, your writing skills. Oh, thank you. And I thought your book had a lot of humor in it, actually. (laughs) Oh, good. Thanks. I didn't feel like that always came through. So thank you. I'm glad that you were able to see that. So before we get started and dive into your new book that is out, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about your backstory of how you pivoted in midlife um, when you left the TV industry and how you got into writing novels. Sure. Well, I left the TV industry because I had my second son and I could not work those hours. They're terrible hours. So I stayed home with my kids. And then when my second son went off to kindergarten, I started to reevaluate everything, which is similar to my book, After Happily Ever After. The main character starts to want to rediscover herself. And I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do because I kept coming back to wanting to go back to television, which I knew was not going to happen. 
So I worked with a life coach, kind of like you, and I worked through a lot of things to figure out what I was good at. We talked about all the things that I enjoyed. And so I came down to, I have always been somebody who is into nutrition and health and exercise. So I ended up going back to school for a master's degree in nutrition, and I opened my own business, and I did that for 10 years. And during those 10 years, I enjoyed it mostly, but I kept missing the writing. So I started writing personal essays for Huffington Post that were all humorous and, you know, jokes. I guess they're jokes on my family, (laughs) my parents and everybody else in my life. And they started getting published. And I was having so much fun that I decided I wanted to pivot again. And I closed my business. And I just, I don't know why. I just thought I'm going to write a book. And I knew it would be fiction. I knew it would have humor in it, but I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. So I entered a workshop and started just writing to prompts. And it sort of just developed into this main character and this storyline. And that's really what I ended up doing. So tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like during that process, you had this pull to go back to writing. And even when you were taking these classes or this course in writing, you were drawn to that and you followed that. So I think that's a key point for people is to listen to what's pulling us and what direction our life is pulling us in. Exactly. And if you have a passion, find another way to keep it. Even if you have a different job, that's why I was writing essays, because it kept me in the creative place that I needed to be. Love that. Love that. So tell me a little bit more about your current book. So my current book is called The Stories We Cannot Tell. And it's the story of a friendship between two women who are from very different backgrounds. And they meet in a support group when they both are about five months pregnant, just coming up to five months pregnant. And they are told that they both have problems with the fetuses that they're carrying. And it's their journey together through ups and downs and how they bond. And they find they have way more in common than they ever expected. Yeah. And by the way, I highly, highly recommend you read her book because I was one of the very lucky ones who read her book before it was published. So thank you for giving me that honor of doing that. Um, And it's a great, great summer read for anybody that's looking to take a book on a vacation or you have a weekend that you don't have a lot going on. I highly recommend it. Thank you. Um, So why did you write this book? Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I've always been interested in women's issues, which is like my first book was a woman who had issues with marriage and aging parents, just like your book. Mm-hmm. And all of these, you know, the empty nest or free bird, you know, which I love that term. So when I went to write this book, I really didn't know at first what I was going to write. But this book, there were so many women I knew who had so many of the same issues, like pregnancies and issues with pregnancies and infertility and miscarriage and having a pregnancy that doesn't go the way they want it to go. And I thought this is the subject that people don't really talk about. And so I really wanted to write something that would get the world talking. And when I did write it, I had no idea that Roe was going to be overturned. The book, I started writing the book during COVID 
And I finished it and was looking for a publisher and had just found a publisher when Roe was overturned. So it was all so timely and shocking because, I mean, honestly, I never would have expected Roe to be overturned. Right. No, none of us did. I mean, who would expect that? Right. So the publisher, normally it takes a very long time to publish a book, like 18 months to two years. And the publisher was trying to get it out a little bit quicker just because of the timing. So they got it out this summer. Fabulous. And why did or do you add a lot of lightness and humor to your writing, especially with such kind of challenging subjects? And that's exactly why. Because I didn't want to write a book where the whole book was a downer and people were crying or even my first book where they're dealing with these aging parents and that's really sad. I came from a sitcom background, so I love witty banter. And that's my favorite part to write. I knew that with this book, there would be some tough scenes, but I wanted to make other scenes happy and fun And there's a love story that goes on, a really fun love story that goes on. So there's other things happening in the book. It's not just this downer of a book. It's much lighter than what it sounds like when you hear what it's about. Not just a heavy, heavy subject. There's some lightness to it. And Leslie is very, very talented at this. And so I really enjoy it. And what I will say without spoiling it is there is a surprise Towards the end of the book that I was not expecting. Good. That's my point. I didn't want anybody to expect it. Yes. And I loved it because it hit home for me. It touches on something that I've dealt with and is is part of who I am. So I loved that you threw that in at the end. So why do you feel it's important for women to talk about women's issues? You know, earlier you said, Women don't talk about these issues. Why do you feel that's important for us? Because there's, especially with pregnancy, when people get married, they start getting that question. Men do not. Women start getting that question. Hey, when are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? Some people don't want to have kids and that's great. You shouldn't have to. If you want to have kids, most people don't really know how long it's going to take and what's going to happen along that road. And so because of that, sometimes It's almost like this self-imposed embarrassment or shame for women that you feel like, oh, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my body because I am not super fertile or I am not producing something immediately that, you know, people say you're supposed to be able to do when you're a woman. And I want to take that stigma away because what I've noticed with women is if somebody approaches somebody and says something, then the woman's like, oh my God, me too. Oh, wow. That's amazing. But we don't necessarily are the first ones to bring it up. I wrote an article for uh, a fun essay for a Huffington Post about menopause. And I got so many people contacting me saying, thank you for bringing this up in the way you brought it up because I didn't know all this stuff going into menopause and their friends didn't tell them going into menopause. And so there's a lot of things that women just don't automatically talk about. But as soon as you get them talking, they will share their experiences and share what happened to them if they feel it's a safe place. And that's what I wanted for these two women is to talk to each other and find, oh, wow, we do have things in common. Mm -hmm. And I think you nailed it on the head of, we do feel shame, 
right? Our society has created this environment of, well, women are supposed to reproduce. And when you don't reproduce or you don't do it in society's timeline that there's something wrong with you when, hello, it takes two people to get pregnant. Exactly. And the men sometimes have the issues. It's not always the women's issues. So there's that piece of it, but we end up taking the blame for it. We do, because mostly when people talk to you, it's men don't ask you, when are you getting pregnant? When are you having a child? It's other women. And a lot of times it's older women who will come to you. And this new generation, I mean, they're really waiting a long time if they have kids. And a lot of them don't even necessarily want to have kids because of the world we're in. And especially, I mean, I've talked to a lot of young people when Roe was overturned, they were like, I don't know if I'm going to have kids and bring them into a world where there's no choice for women. I mean, that's crazy. Right. Well, we're rolling without getting political. We're rolling back our rights. And that's a little scary. And I don't blame them. And a mother of four daughters, I know that those kinds of topics and questions are on their mind as well. And in my opinion, it's not my decision of whether my children or anybody in this younger generation chooses to have children or not. It's such a personal decision. And we as a society or older generations should not put that pressure or project what they think this younger generation should do or not. Let it be their decision. I think getting a little off topic, I think that's part of the problem is our society has told people you need to have children, but then they do have the children and they realize, oh my God, this is so much freaking work. Yes. And then they're not up for the job. And then the kids end up suffering because of it. And they're the innocent victims and that's not fair to them. It's so true. I mean, nobody should have a child who isn't sure they want one. And again, I mean, we both know when you have your first child, you're you're never ready. I mean, you just have no idea what you're in for. So you're just not ready. But if you go into it with, I do want to have a child, that's different than, I don't really know if I want to have a child. It does change your whole life. I yeah. mean, it's, you know, I have two boys and believe me, they were so upset about Roe. Because it affects them too. You know, whoever partners are, you know, it completely affects their lives also. Right. And I feel lucky we live in a state where we aren't affected by it to the level that other women are in other states, but which is why my book takes place in Los Angeles. But watching these women struggle with these issues and drive 12 hours just to get an appointment is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking in some states. You know, if it's a rape or an incest or 10-year-old girl, they don't care. And that's not consent to have a kid, you know, go through this and have to leave the state to go have a termination. And what would have happened to that child if the 10-year-old had that child? You know, it's like they're not really thinking about the long term. No, they aren't at all. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. But just so you know, my book is not political. It's all an emotional story. There's no politics in the book. I wanted to show both sides of an issue without showing any politics in it. Right. Well, and that's a really good point, Leslie, because 
putting the politics aside, when you are pregnant and you are faced with some type of problem or issue, because I know I was, I have a set of identical twins. And when I went in for my ultrasound and actually it was my amnio that I had at whatever the mark is, maybe 20 weeks, I found out that I was having complications. And before that, it's like, okay, I had two children. And then I found out I was pregnant with identical twins. So I was having during that time, those from, I don't know how long it was, maybe six to eight weeks in between my first ultrasound and my amnio, I had a pity party for one. Like I was, oh my God, what am I going to do? How do I raise twins? I already have two daughters. I've got four kids under the age of five. How, you know, like That's a lot. But once I found out I had complications with my pregnancy, everything changed. I was like, okay, it's no longer about me. It's about what I can do during this pregnancy to make sure that these twins have the best possible outcome, right? And that they don't, because in worst case scenario, my kids, both of the twins could have had some type of dysfunction or medical issue. And so I wanted to do everything in my power to make sure that that didn't happen. And you're a perfect example because women like these two women in my book, they want those babies. They do not want to have to be faced with something going wrong with them where they might have to make a decision. And that's a really important thing. It's not like they're walking in going, oh, I don't want the baby. You know, I'm 20 weeks pregnant. I don't feel like having this baby. People don't do that. You know, they only make those decisions when it's a tragic situation. Right. And they have a no rape, a financial burden that they can't take on. Right. But I mean, like in the middle of their pregnancy, when they're, you know, almost 20 weeks, they do not go in and just say, ah, you know, I, I decided I can't afford this baby. That doesn't work that way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. at 20 weeks. Absolutely not. Right. Agreed. Wow. So how have you changed your life? after you became a free bird, because your boys are out of college, right? Yes, they're 26 and 24. Although my 24-year-old is home right now because he got laid off like <laughs> so many other people. My 26-year-old is gone, but I was a free bird for a, quite a long time until that happened. And personally, I loved it. <laughs> I didn't have to think about dinner for anybody. And if I didn't get to the market, it didn't matter because my husband would be like, oh, I don't care either. So everything was a little bit easier in that sense. But I have to say, I do kind of like having him around. So it's like it's a mixed bag of things. But I do love the freedom. I mean, I remember when my kids went off to college. And when my first one went, I cried in the market because I thought, I'm not buying everything for him and his treats and whatever else. Mm -hmm. My second one went, I was like, ooh, I'm free. You know, no more medical forms to fill out, no more lunches to do, none of that stuff. Right. Extra laundry, just, you know, helping with him with whatever he's got going on. Yeah. Or before they drive, you're driving them everywhere. You know, you're making them dinner, you're doing lunches. It's, it's a lot of work and you don't even realize it until it's over. And I didn't miss it. I have to say, I don't. I love having time for myself to get up in the morning. I work out every morning. I can write every day. I can do whatever I want. Right. Yes. And that is very, very freeing. 
completely. Now, do you have parents still that you? I have, my mom is alive. She is 86. She doesn't live here. She lives in Northern California, but she's doing great. She's on her own. She's more social than I am and involved in every club in the world and travels all the time. My father passed away six years ago. He had a lot of medical stuff and she was his caregiver. So, you know, you talk about a free bird. My mother misses him. I mean, they were married for 55, 58 years, but to take care of somebody that's a lot too. She, that was her life until he passed away. So, and how long was he sick that your mom had to take care of him? Uh, he had a stroke about five or six years before that, but he had some, a rare form of muscular dystrophy that came on when he was in his sixties and it kind of helped him like where he was like in a wheelchair after that. So he, his brain was totally there. He was smart as a whip, could make jokes. And all of that. But yeah, it, it was probably about five or six years. Yeah, that's a long time to take care for your spouse. And so, yeah, so good for her for going out and living her life. And, and that's something that we should all strive for, right? Yeah. Be like your mom. Yeah, exactly. And she goes to the gym three times a week. So, you know. <laughs> Love it. Love it. And she's 86? She's 86. Yeah. A woman after my own heart. I know, me too. I, you know, <laughs> my grandmother, my great grandmother, they all lived in the nineties. Yeah, love that, love that. So, as we come to a close here, tell me about a confession that you'd like to share with our listeners today of something that you've dealt with and maybe how you're either dealing with it or overcame it. Okay. I can't say I overcame it, but my confession is I have been writing, oh gosh, for so many, so many years, and I still have imposter syndrome. I had it when I wrote television, even when I wrote something that I was really proud of. I always felt like, oh, this can't really be real. I'm not really a writer. I didn't call myself an author until the day my book actually came out. Because I thought, well, I write. I never call myself a writer either. I'd say I write because I felt like, well, I can't really be what I'm saying I am. It just doesn't ring true. I think the way I really got over it was honestly the day my book was published. Because once it went out there and I started getting reviews and I started getting readers, I was like, oh, I guess I am an author. Like, I can't not call myself an author. I am. And so I think that's really how I kind of got through it was just by continuously doing it and reminding myself. But I still have imposter syndrome all the time, whether I'm writing or doing anything. <laughs> I had it as a nutritionist. I think it's something kind of ingrained in me. So, and a lot of people. Yeah. So it's an ongoing challenge for you. And, and we have those in our lives for sure. Well, Leslie, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited that your book is coming into the world. And I know our listeners and so many people are going to love it like I loved it. And tell us where people can find your book. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. My book is available anywhere books are sold. Both of my books, you can get them at Amazon. You can get them at Barnes & Noble or bookshop.org or visit your local library or bookstore. So that's really where you can get them. And you can also buy them online through me on my website, which is 
lesliearasmussen.com. Perfect. And we will have those links in the show notes. So thank you again, Leslie, for being here and the best of luck with your second book. Oh, thank you so much, Lori. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions of a Free Bird. I'm grateful to be in your ears and hearts. If you're interested in becoming a free bird, I'd love to support you. Please check out my website at laurieejames.com to learn how we can work together or to sign up for my newsletter so you can receive tips on how to date and relationship differently and ultimately find more freedom and joy in your life. If you found this podcast helpful, please follow or subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with friends so they can find more freedom in their second or third act also. Until next time.